All right, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's David, and I'm the guy who does the announcements here uh, at the church, and uh, I'm really excited uh, to be with you this morning. So, hey, uh, I want you guys to humor me a little bit. Uh, we're going to get outside of our normal comfort zone a little bit just for a second, but I really believe in you. Um, so here's what we're going to do. I want you to turn, and I want you to tell the person next to you where you like to go on your day off. Just really quick, tell them where you like to go on your day off for me. All right, guys. Well, thanks for humoring me. Uh, we're going to circle back to that in just a second. Uh, but before we get started, uh, I want to give you guys a quick word on uh, Right Now Media. So uh, last week, I told you guys, hey, there should be an email in your inbox with an invitation. Anybody else not get the email? Yeah, I got home uh, from church. My wife was sick, um, and she goes, hey, I didn't get the email in my inbox. What's going on in there? And I'm like, yeah, you know, apparently no one got it. So um, Here's what we did. So uh, right behind me, there's a video showing you on our website. If you go to the ridge.cc, just our homepage, you scroll all the way down to the very bottom of the page. On the bottom right-hand corner, there is a button uh, or a link, I should say. You click that link, it'll take you straight there to sign up for your account through uh, the Ridge. So um, that's all you need to do. Super easy. Spread the word. If you still need help, uh, Bryce and Kaysen are here to help you uh, down front afterwards. So... Um, all right, so I want to uh, tell a story to give us a little traction for where we're going to go uh, today. So uh, some of you guys know, um, I used to live in Virginia. I lived in Virginia for nine years uh, after I got out of high school. Um, and one day on my day off when I was living in coastal Virginia, um, I was leaving uh, from getting a haircut, and I was driving to go meet a friend for lunch. And I was taking a shortcut um, through this neighborhood uh, super normal day, a shortcut I've taken, you know, hundreds of times uh, leaving from the place I got my haircut to go to this restaurant. Um, and all of a sudden, a guy on a motorcycle pulls up behind me, and he's like really, really close uh, behind me, you know, and I think, um, that's kind of weird. And then all of a sudden, blue lights on his motorcycle turn on. <laughs> and I think, man, that's even weirder. Uh, I guess it's a motorcycle cop. I've never seen one of these in, in real life. So I'm like, he must be trying to get someone. So I'm going to pull over to the shoulder and let him pass. And then to my surprise, uh, he pulls over behind me. Uh, the person he's trying to pull over is me. Uh, and I'm realizing this in, in real time. And, uh, you know, this guy comes up to me and guys, I kid you not, this guy's name was Officer Hollers. Okay. So he was appropriately named, let me tell you. So for those of you who don't understand really quick, um, hollering is Appalachian for yelling in your face, um, which is different than hooting. Hooting is also yelling or speaking in an elated manner, but it has more to do with happiness. Hollering is not that. And then hooting and hollering together is a totally different thing. We'll have to talk about another time. So anyways, so Officer Hollers lets me know loud and clear that I am being pulled over for two reasons. One, I was going 33 and a 25, so I'm being cited for speeding. And also I'm being cited for something called overstay. And then he very loudly blowing my eyebrows off lets me know that he is going to see me in court. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so I'm like, I understand, you know, I understand a speeding ticket. I know what a speeding ticket is. I know I violated it. I was eight miles over, all this stuff. But like, what on earth is is overstay. I've never heard of overstay. So like any good millennial, I get my phone out and I Google it. Uh, and what overstay is, is a failure to change your plates when you move 
uh, states, but it is one of the most rarely cited traffic laws uh, in the entire country. So I'm asking some of my friends, like, you know, what, what should I do about this? Uh, and and no, one, no one has heard of it. Most people encouraged me not to worry about it. Some people said, dude, don't even worry about it. Don't even pay it. You don't even need to show up at court. Just go online, do all that stuff. One person said, and that's a, you know what that is? That's a Civil War era law that's still uh, in the law. So you don't even need to, you don't even need to pay it. And I thought, that sounds like, that sounds pretty good. Like, I'd like to go with that <laughs> chain of action. And I thought, wait, did they have license plates in the Civil War? <laughs> like, what would you even put your license plate on? Like, your horse? I was like, that, that can't be right. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, so I had a friend that I went to church with uh, who's an attorney, and her name was Liz. Uh, and I, I, I went to Liz one Sunday after church, and I asked her about it, and she said that she would look it up and let me know. Um, so, you know, I'm still feeling like maybe there's a good chance that I get out of this silly ticket and I don't have to pay it. Um, so the next day, Liz calls me and he, she says that it turns out this is actually a pretty serious charge. And, you know, technically you have broken the law. You are guilty of doing that. It's a class two misdemeanor punishable up to six months in jail. And because you have lived in Virginia for like eight years and you've not changed your plates, <laughs> there is a really good chance if you don't show up, the judge may actually do that. Uh, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work with you. Uh, we're going to go together, and we're going to work together to try to get you back into good standing with the state of Virginia. Now, I didn't look at Liz and say, Liz, you're just saying that to try to scare me. Liz, you're just saying that because you're a fear mongerer. I didn't say, Liz, you're really killing my vibe today. Can you give me some more positive energy? No, I didn't say any of that. I took Liz's warning seriously because, one, I trusted in my relationship with Liz that she had the best intentions for me at heart. Two, I trusted in her expertise and her experience that she was qualified to give me the best direction. I trusted Liz's warning enough to follow it through with obedience, to actually physically take my body to court and to listen to her advice and say all the things that she told me to say because I believed if I did that, that was going to be the best possible way for me to come out on the other side. And that is what today's teaching is all about, is do we trust God enough to take his warnings seriously? Because I believe there is an ache within all of us to be within a place of trust. We want to rest in our relationships because we trust those who are around us. We feel secure in those relationships, right? And some of you know very, very well that being in a family relationship, work, social relationship with people that you don't trust is exhausting. And it is no way to live what Jesus called the good life. So, Here's what I want us to do. I just want us to pray and see what the Lord has for us today. And I just want to take just a brief minute before we pray. Maybe um, if, you, if you pray by bowing and closing your eyes, I just want to spend just a brief second just in silence because I can't help but feel like some of you guys came in today and you wrestled that pack of animals called your children uh, to get here on time. Or maybe you got in an argument with your spouse and you're really contemplating taking Mark's class uh, in a couple of weeks. Maybe there's just, you had something go on this week at work and it has just been following you every single day. I just want us to take a minute just to pause before we pray and just prepare ourselves to hear uh, from the Holy Spirit. So let's do that.
Lord, I thank you for every person here. God, I thank you for our church. I thank you for your faithfulness to us here. God, I thank you to your kindness that you have given us your word. God, that shows us the way that we can live, that shows us the way that true life can be found. God, I thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, God, that brought us out of sin and into freedom. God, that we have the freedom to do good. We have the freedom to trust you. We have the freedom to follow you. Lord, give us the faith to trust you. Give us the faith to keep your word and to take it seriously. God, give us faith today to understand what you might have for us. Holy Spirit, we want to hear from you today. We don't want to hear from David. God, I can't change anybody, but you can. Lord, I pray that I would step out of the way and that you would step in. We ask this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want you guys to open up to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. So flip or tap your way uh, over there. Um, Today, we're going to be completing our vision series uh, for the year, Faith for the Future. So over the past few weeks, uh, we've been talking about how despite circumstances, despite challenges, despite unknowns in front of us, uh, we can have faith and trust in God. Um, and Hebrews, uh, as a whole, if you're not familiar with the letter, uh, is a letter written to help the reader understand how Jesus is the culmination of the hope of the Old Testament. All of the things that we hope for um, from reading the Old Testament, Jesus is the crescendo or the culmination uh, of that. So we've been reading in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, we're going to actually start today uh, where we started a few weeks ago, and then we're going to finish up uh, here. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says this, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now here the author of Hebrews gives us a definition for the word faith, which I think is so helpful because faith is a word that we toss around a lot, right? Uh, We use it sometimes as like a catch-all term, do you have a faith? And when we say that, we're asking someone, do you have a religious belief? Uh, In contracts, maybe some of you guys that work in contracts, you deal with what's called a good faith agreement, and that means that you're just agreeing to fair dealing uh, based on honor, based on the honor system. Uh, Sometimes faith is used rather ambiguously. If you watch uh, a lot of TV or you watch stuff on social media, you'll hear people say things like, have faith in yourself. You can do it. Dig deep, have faith in yourself, which just means just try to get down within yourself and just find something to overcome whatever it is in front of you. And I'm not necessarily saying that any of those uh, things are wrong. I'm just saying that that's not how the author of Hebrews uses the word faith here. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright wisely points out that for the author of Hebrews, that faith and hope are closely linked together in this entire chapter. If you read all of chapter 11, you're going to notice that faith and hope are very, very tight together. And I would add that belief is as well. So what the author is saying when it says, verse 1, So when it says confidence in what we hope for, the author is saying believers can trust God is going to keep his promise and he is going to bring about his purpose. And when he says assurance about things that we do not see, he's saying that you can trust things that are going to happen 
<clears throat> sorry, he says, we can trust things that we do not see. The author says things that we weren't around to see. So what he's trying to say is, look, you can look at the past. You can look at God's past faithfulness, the things that he's done. You can see his faithfulness in the scriptures. You can see his faithfulness in your life. You can see his faithfulness in community. You can use that as assurance to see things that you haven't got to see yet, things that are becoming in the future, things that are over the horizon, things that where you don't know exactly how it's going to pan out. We can trust God's word pointing to the future and the things that we were not around for in the past to the point that it orders our actions in the present, in the present. You guys see that? The author of Hebrews is interacting past, future, and present moment, how we can order our lives. So contrary to popular belief, the Bible does not call, call us to blindly accept faith. You guys ever heard people say that before? Christianity is all about blind faith but rather to consider God's faithfulness as evidence and assurance for the future. We look at the evidence of his faithfulness in the past that gives us assurance for the future to the point we can order our actions right now in the present. Scripture, in scripture, faith and reason are not devoid of one another. In fact, they work together. Now, verse two teaches us that this is not a new concept. But this is how God has operated in relationship to his people all along. And then he goes on for the rest of the chapter to give us concrete examples from the Old Testament to help further our understanding of faith and how we apply faith in day-to-day -day life. And that's what we've been doing in this series. Over the last two weeks, we covered the first two characters that he lists. And today we're going to cover Noah in verse 7. So I encourage you guys to read the rest of Hebrews chapter 11. Read all of the backstory that it references in the Old Testament. It would make a great uh, personal Bible study uh, for you this year. So um, in your Bibles or on your phones, flip down to verse 7. Just scroll down a little bit because over the past few weeks we've covered these other verses. Verse 7 says this, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that is keeping with faith. So Noah is a story that just about everybody has heard, right? Even if you've never cracked open a Bible before, or you wouldn't even know where to find the story of Noah in the Bible, everyone I feel like has heard the story of Noah. The backstory being referenced here in Hebrews 11:7 is from Genesis 5 through 9. And I would love to read through the entire story with you guys this morning, but I'm afraid time will not allow us to read all four chapters this morning. But basically, the story goes like this. The story picks up with the sin that we learned about a few weeks ago, Cain killing his brother Abel. You guys remember when we talked about that? Cain's sin of killing his brother Abel has gone viral over the entire world. Literally, everybody is doing it. And later, down the family tree, Cain's descendant, Lamech, uh, he begins collecting and abusing women as if they were trophies. Uh, and he begins killing everybody that crosses him. And not only that, he's not ashamed of it. He's not guilty of it. He's proud of it. In fact, the book of Genesis records uh, a song that he sings where he is bragging about how many women that he has abused like trophies and how many people he's killed for getting in his way. The book of Genesis tells us when we pick up with the story of Noah that humans have multiplied and filled the world with wickedness wickedness. And it's not just Lamech that's doing this. 
but it's everyone. Lamech is just an example or an archetype for what everybody else is doing. The world has descended into utter anarchy and chaos. Now notice, this is a complete and total stark contrast from what God told us to do in Genesis chapter one, which was to multiply and fill the earth with goodness, to represent him. But humans have not filled the world with goodness. They have filled the world with wickedness in the story of Noah. Uh, The metaphor falls short, but I hope that it's still helpful. It makes me think of the parent that creates a safe and hospitable home for their children to grow up in. And then they turn around and they find their children have destroyed the living room. There's paint and there's markers all over the wall. The furniture is destroyed and ragged. The oven is on fire and they are on the ground hitting each other and screaming. And God's response is so interesting because also like a loving parent, he is grieved over humanity's actions in the world. It does not say he was angry. Read Genesis 5 through 9. That phrase does not occur one time. It says he was grieved. If you think this is a story about an angry man in the sky, then you have the wrong God. To me, this is reminiscent of the parent who, despite their best effort in raising their children, is grieved over how they have seen their child has destroyed their own life and their own family and the world around them through their own choices. Now, nevertheless, God does not stay on the sideline. God sets out to preserve his creation because amongst all of the chaos, there is one man left in the world, and that man is Noah. Genesis 5.9 says that Noah was righteous. Now, righteous is another kind of odd word that we don't really use outside the Bible, but if you think about the word righteousness, it really just means being in right relationship with someone, being in correct and right relationship. It says Noah was righteous and Noah was blameless and he walked faithfully with God. And now this is the part of the story that most of us know. God warns Noah that because of sin, he is gonna send a great flood. And this is gonna be something that has never happened before. So go build an ark, gather your family, and then gather the whole family of animals because it is about to get bad because no one outside the ark will survive. And as we know, Noah does this. His family survives the flood because Noah had enough faith to take God's warning about sin seriously. That is what the author of Hebrews is focusing in on on verse 7. Noah had enough faith that led to obedience. Genesis shows us he had real faith, even though the world was turning upside down and inside out. He trusted God enough to let it influence his actions in the present, even if he couldn't see all the details of how it was going to pan out. Church, the question for us today is, do we have that level of faith and trust in God? Do we trust God because one, we have a relationship with him and we know he has our best intentions at heart? And two, do we trust he's good enough and wise enough to give us the best direction? Can we trust God when the world seems like it's turning upside down and inside out and when we're just tempted to just go with the flow? Pete Hughes, a pastor in London, England, speaks into the tension that believers feel. He says, we may believe God came through for us in the past, 
but we don't often have faith that's big enough for what's ahead. God, you were faithful to us before, but I don't know if you're big enough for this bill. You were faithful when I was sick last time, but I don't know if you're big enough for this diagnosis. God, you were faithful with my past hurt, but I'm not sure that you're big enough this time. God, you were faithful to our church, but I don't know about what's up ahead. This is something that we've never been through before. God is telling us that we can look at the past as a gateway into the future so that it informs our actions in the present moment. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he was big enough then, then he is big enough for us now. As New Testament scholar Michael Kruger puts it, the question for us is the object of our faith strong enough to withstand the reality that is in front of us. And what does that mean, guys? Listen back or think back to the story I told you guys in the beginning. I could have believed really strongly and firmly, like I could have really just gripped my hands and got down within myself and said, man, if I ignore those tickets, they will just go away. I could really psych myself into believing that. I could place the object of my faith firmly on myself. And that would have landed me in jail. But instead, I placed my faith in the object of something proven. Trust that placing your faith in God is strong enough for the reality in front of you because he is proven. And he proves himself to us over and over and over again. Sometimes what that looks like for us practically in your day-to-day life when you're going to work tomorrow morning is being obedient to what Jesus says and believing that it is not only an ethically good thing to do, that it is the morally correct thing to do, but it is also the best possible way to live life. Sometimes placing your faith in God is applied by being obedient to Jesus' command. Let us remember Noah's story begins because no one is taking God seriously about sin. See, faith, guys, is not just a religious thing. It's a human thing. And each day, with each choice that you make, it reveals what our faith is really in and what we really trust in. See, the evidence of our faith in Jesus is if we believe him enough for it to inform our actions in the present. Christian philosopher Dallas Willard says this, we don't believe in something merely by saying we believe it or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe in something when we act as if it was true. Jesus teaches us that we can be satisfied with what we have and that true life is found in contentment. And we don't need to consume more and more and more and more. Do we have enough faith to not buy 90 pounds of clothes per year? That's the average for an American. Jesus teaches us to love our neighbor and in loving our neighbor, true life is found. Do we have enough faith to invite them over for dinner? Jesus teaches us that his best intention for a romantic sexual relationship is with only someone we're married to. Do we have enough faith to take him seriously? Jesus teaches us that he is the giver of provision so that we can be generous. Do we have enough faith to be generous to our neighbor and trust in his provision and not our own? Jesus teaches us that the kingdom of God is among us. Do we have enough faith to participate? 
This is a hard teaching. This requires spiritual maturity. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus tells the disciples to extend forgiveness even if someone hurts them seven times a day. Still forgive them. And you know what's so interesting about their response? They don't argue straightforward with the logic of it. Well, what about five times? They respond with, Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. Translation, Jesus, how can this be a good way to live? If it's really a good way to live, I need you to increase my faith. A series of quotes from Pastor John Mark Comer, quotes that really help me understand how faith and sin are related to each other. He says, people think about sin like the speed limit. It's a really good idea, but who really cares? What's the big deal? Yeah, it's a good idea to go 55, but I could go 62 and get there faster. And what you may think is, David, I've heard pastors say that stuff. I've even read it before, but really, man, who really cares? No one really takes that seriously. Everybody is doing it. Business is business. This is the real world, and you need to grow up. Are all phrases people have told me when I encourage them to take sin seriously. Guys, sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it is bad. We cannot believe God is trying to rip us off. Man, as Mark so man, beautifully and eloquently put it just a few minutes ago in worship, we believe that sin is necessary to achieve something. Some of you believe that sin is necessary for you to achieve happiness, and that is at the core, the lie of the enemy and the snake in the garden. And he has been running that same play for all of history because he doesn't need to run any other play. We cannot believe that God is trying to rip us off. He's showing us that we can trust him even with our innermost desires, that he has proven and that he has tested. We make sin all about self-control, but at the end of the day, it's all about faith. Who do you trust, God or the snake? Following Christ is not trying really, really, really hard not to sin. It's putting all of your chips going all in with Jesus to trust in him and his way, to put it in the practice, put it to test, see that he is good. Give up your way of life and you will find true life, the life that you have been searching for underneath all of that. You will find life and life in full. Listen, I know some of you are feeling so awkward right now. But while there is no ark for you to board, to lift you out of the floodwaters of certain death, there is the cross of salvation lifting us up out of certain death and into abundant life. And the only way to rise is to put your full trust and faith in the name of Jesus and his finished work on the cross. To trust Jesus in such a way that it orders your actions in the presence to swear your allegiance to him as king and to put your faith in him alone. Because we have all failed, myself included, at finding life elsewhere. In some way or another, we have all chosen the snake but God, who is rich in mercy, has given us an opportunity to be united to him. But the only way 
to do that is faith in Jesus. Jesus said, I am the gate. He didn't say, I am one of the gates. Now, if you'll allow me for a second, it's a pastoral word for our church here at the Ridge as we wrap up. We live in a time in multiple generations that are becoming increasingly obsessed with speed. Amazon Prime two-day delivery isn't fast enough, so we're getting drones to get it there in less than 24 hours. 5G data, because Wi-Fi downloads are so slow. Double drive-throughs, because fast food isn't fast enough. Mobile order, because I can't be bothered to wait in line for two minutes. Can I tell you something? Faith in God isn't microwavable. It takes time to process. Because God's answers to our prayer and faith do not always come on our timetable, and they do not always come in the way that we would like. Some words from God are immediately nourishing to us, but most require us to process with him and the church. Faith in God means sometimes an answer requires a process for the answer to be revealed as good news. Sometimes God's answer comes to us and we think, how could this possibly be good news? And how could God possibly be good? Tyler Staten, a pastor in Portland, Oregon, says this, God isn't revealed as someone we can perfectly understand, but he is a God that we can perfectly trust. There is this rising phenomenon in culture where we are seeking community and commonality with what we don't believe rather than what we do believe. We get into groups with complainers, naysayers, and groups bound by not having to hold on to anything, but just by being against something. Again, Tyler Staten, for most of us, when the teaching of Jesus does not square with our life, we withdraw from community and we form a pseudo community built out of our pain. We find people who are put off in all the same ways, share our unique brand of disappointment with God and the church. We don't go to those who might challenge us and stick with us through the process, but a community built on disillusionment or a common gripe rather than in faith and in process is the spiritual equivalent to ibuprofen. It can numb our symptoms for a moment, but it can never heal us. A community that will empathize with you, but not challenge you can comfort you but it will never heal you. Church, rest assured, where you go with questions, with faith, with doubt, matter. It matters. It shows where your faith is. What community is going to help you process that? Because there lies what you truly believe in. Now, a pastoral challenge today as we get ready to close out. The question for us it's how do we become more faithful people? How does a believer get better at faith? It's not like you can hear this message today and boom, you're instantly a more faithful person, right? Dallas Willard, again, when asked the same question I'm asking you, said this, to grow in faith, do the next right thing you know you ought to do. So what's your next step with the Holy Spirit? What's he stirring in your heart? Here's a list of some things that maybe you can do to get started. Uh, but this is uh, not limited to the following, uh, but these are just examples of how you could potentially take a next step if you're like, man, I just need something more concrete to work off of here. Here's, here's four 
disciplines that you can work on this week. Number one, Sabbath. Take a whole day or a half day once a week just to stop and focus on rest and worshiping God. Show that you have faith in God's provision by taking time off from not working and trusting that he really is the true provider. Number two, prayer. You can take your hurts and doubts to God daily. Find a daily time this week to spend just a few moments in prayer that are intentional. Show you have faith that you believe God is active in your life by praying to him each morning this week or whatever time that you find that works for you. Simplicity. Can you go 21 days without buying anything besides food and fuel, besides what's absolutely necessary? Show that you have faith in God, that he can make you content by not just trying to wedge more material into your life to try to find happiness. Number four, hospitality. Share a meal with someone you want to encourage this week. Show faith that you really believe Jesus isn't kidding when he says life is found in loving your neighbor in a real and practical way. Because when he says love, it's not, you know, the kind of cheesy hallmark love that so many of us feel where it's like, I'm just going to feel good feelings towards them. It's real, in-your-face, reality, action-oriented. So here's what I'd like to do as we close out. Got just a couple minutes. Just how we kind of began with a moment of silent reflection and focusing, I'd like to end with just a moment of silent reflection and focusing. And I'd like you guys just to reflect with me just for a minute. God, what's the next right thing? that you're calling me to do. Holy Spirit, what is the next practice? What is the next person? What is the next activity that you're calling me to do? So if we can, if you, if you feel comfortable with that, if we bow, think on that, pray on that, maybe take a few deep breaths, and then we'll close. Lord, help us go from this place being marked as people of faith, being marked as people who take your word and your teachings seriously. Jesus, I can't help but think in the Gospels in your hometown of Capernaum. It says that your work was limited there because they did not have enough faith. Lord, please let that not be so for our community. God, let us be people who radiate trust in you because we can see your past faithfulness and it gives us hope and assurance for the future, so much so that we can live this out in our present moment. Jesus, you are the object of our faith and you are more than proven strong enough to handle the realities that are in front of us. God, as I think about those who are in our church and those who are in this room, Lord, I think about all the challenges and the suffering, God, that are facing some of us daily. Lord, that's not a burden that I could bear, but it is a burden that you have gladly borne for us because you are the God who is with us and you are the God who sees us and you are the God who walks with us. 
God, give us the kind of faith where we act as if we believe that's really true. Lord, be with us this week as we encounter difficult people and difficult conversations. God, help us love them like you love them. God, be with us this week when we are fearful over provision. And remember that you've never left us nor forsaken us. God, be with our church as we step into something that we've never done before. God, we give this all to you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for joining us. Have a great week of worship.